Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host with Karen. Hey guys. As usual, if you guys want to follow us, uh, we are on all the major pa- uh, podcast platforms. Uh, and then if you want to reach out to us with any questions and whatnot, it's uh, MedFamilyMD on Instagram. Uh, is that right? Is that That's a, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Eric doesn't check it. I only tell him when there's something pertinent that not he needs to, to know. <laughs> well, not, not, not allowed. I just don't. And uh, I, I stand by the face for radio mentality. I don't think uh, I need, anyone needs to see any pictures of me on, online. <laughs> Not very flattering in a general sense. Anyway, um, apologize. Uh, we kind of can used to kind of apologizing for late episodes. Uh, I I wish I could say like every Friday we can get these episodes out, and therefore everyone should be happy. You know, well every Wednesday, sorry, is what we were aiming for, and then the residency is proving to be a bit of a challenge. Wouldn't that with that concern? Well, the schedule varies, so. When and life varies, right? So when we are able to record and get it out, is going to vary. But um, next week is our first week off, um, so we are hoping to bank a few episodes, probably on specific topics. Um, so that way, uh, when Eric works works nights, or when there are other instances where things come up we can have an episode ready for you guys. We, we say this, I think, every time, but I maybe know. we'll see if we get it done. Because really, the next week is being earmarked for doctor's appointments, and it's being earmarked for studying for Step 3. It's also being ear. I think at some point we talked about possibly visiting some people back in Georgia, which I'm not sure if it's actually materialized. And then um, I have a it's all in a week span. So, <laughs> and it's not even like a full. Like it is a full week because it's basically Monday through Sunday. Yeah. But like I don't. I used, I have still have to work this weekend. So, fun. Uh, <laughs> but being on step down, it, it's it's challenging for sure. And I I think I don't know. I don't want to make it sound more than it is. And I I think in some regards, I look at some of my other cohort uh, the peers that are on the the same floor and a lot of them can get their work done they get the notes written and hand off at four o'clock and i'm struggling to get that done by six um there, there was a few days last week where i was like oh 4 30 i'm out of here this is great um and then there's been a lot lot more days since then <laughs> where it's been seven eight o'clock at night and part of that is i think just the uh, the atmosphere of the team where there's a lot of chatter and talk and we have med students and we have new when we have a new attending coming on uh, our rounds take a little bit longer and then when we have to do that plus morning report plus didactics then um, suddenly your day becomes a lot shorter and you're trying to answer nurse messages adjust patients medications coordinate with other consulting groups it 
I, I'm making a lot of excuses, but uh, my other peers have the same thing. They all do the same thing, but somehow they're able to knock it all out by four. So uh, I need to get, I guess, more efficient at that. Eh, that's debatable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but this week on um, Step Down, you've had a lot. So the first time that Eric was on Step Down, it was a lot of DKA patients. And this time around, it seems like there's a little bit more variety and a little bit more these these people are going to pass. Very, yeah, very um, sick, very n- not great. Yeah, so there have been some that have passed. There have been some that have gone up to ICU. Um, and so it's a lot more conversations with the family than I think you had in the past. And I think depending on the family, that can take quite a bit of time. Um, just explaining and being cognizant of what they're going through, but at the same time, trying to give them a realistic expectations of outcome. And I mean, I think that's true. A lot of times I think we're used to as med students, not having to do these tough conversations. And, uh, if you were lucky, you might've participated in one or two of them. And by participating, I mean, you were a fly on the wall, uh, and I think it's hard to do some of these conversations with fans, especially of talking about code status, talking about uh, comfort care, talking about goals of care, which is essentially the same thing. But um, I mean, first you talk about code status and then you got to eventually start talking about comfort care. If you look at the patient, you're just like this patient, this isn't turning around. We're not we're not seeing significant clinical improvement. We're like, especially in older patients at a high acuity like you. Um, you do have to have those conversations, but you, it's a it's an art form, from what from what I can tell. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm I am even a novice in this area. It's definitely a little bit more experience this week, but there's certainly a third year on our team that has a lot more experience, and he, and even he struggles with it because you know fa- every family is different, and every family has their own dynamic and uh, resistance or um, supportive of these. Uh, these conversations, so it can be very challenging and very time-consuming. I think, I think my senior spent like three hours one day just working on uh, a code status change for one patient, and then just for it to kind of fall apart like the next day. So it's um, it's tricky, and I think it is. I mean, it's a nece- necessary part of the job. It's necessary. You can't just avoid it. I mean, unfortunately, there are I think some doctors who do avoid it and. They just kind of treat patients based on the code status and kind of move forward um, and never really engage in that conversation. But uh, it it is definitely beneficial to have those conversations. Those are hard conversations to have with families and um, to do it well. <laughs> because I, there's a lot of, um, I think, misinformation when it comes to, as a, it's a favorite buzzword nowadays, but uh, <laughs> there's a lot of information or mis, uh, misnomers about code, like going DNR. Uh, I think I mentioned it to a couple people during this week, and they, the way they respond to me talking about going to DNR is as if we were going to stop treating the patient, as if we're going to give up on the patient right there and then. Like, you say, well, DNR, no more <laughs> heart pressure, no lower blood pressure control, no respiration support. Like that's not what DNR is. Obviously, that's 
that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is like fertility of of like life saving measures. So like if this patient aspirates and starts uh, going in, or they have a massive GI bleed and they go into tach- uh, VTAC, and you have to start doing chest compressions. You have to start trying to get an airway, like on on. On like a thirty-year-old, a pretty healthy person, sure, that's probably not the worst idea. You know, you can probably bring them back in a lot of cases, but I don't know what the odds are, so don't quote me on that. But <laughs> uh, but when you get up to like ninety years old, like that's pretty that's pretty traumatic. It's pretty traumatic on the patient to do chest compressions. It's pretty traumatic to try to intubate them and then try to get them off the intubator. Um, extubate them while they're in the ICU uh, all that all that stuff that goes into it it's it's very traumatic uh, on the patient and sometimes it's like is it do we expect a good t- clinical turnaround is this patient going to recover go back to their uh, baseline living afterwards are they going to be able to live a, a decent life I'm obviously they're 80 years old we're not going really to expect them to run the next marathon we're generally not going to but like obviously like you still have value and whatnot at 90 years old you still have grandkids and family members that you want to see and talk to. And everyone's every situation is going to be different. So I think I, I do want to caution if you're listening to this and you're, you're excited, like, oh, well, this person, you, you, you imagine an and scenario that you probably personally attached to. That's, I meant I'm using broad strokes in this conversation because every situation has to be kind of be reevaluated. There was, I think we had one patient on the floor who was like in the 90s, and almost good health, like almost great health, like almost nothing ever wrong with him. And we did discharge him, uh, and you know, I think back to wherever he came from, and he was doing fine. Like, but we've had one, some in the '80s that are just absolute train wrecks. And so it's uh, patient to patient, obviously. Um, yeah. Well, when you have multi-system <laughs> failure, like, and you're trying to gauge, okay, can I uh, fix this system without? permanently damaging all these other systems because these patients being the age that they are most likely will not qualify for a transplant. So <laughs> yeah, there's that. And then there's like, Oh, can we actually expect this to clinically turn around? Like how long would this take to clinically turn around? I mean, obviously we can do this forever. Uh, we can do some things forever, but obviously like in DNR especially is useful in help knowing like, we're going to continue to do what we can for the patients, and but if they take a turn for the worse, you know, going to that extra level, that higher acuity, uh, again CPR being as traumatic as it, like you do it on a healthy person, you're very liable to fracture ribs, but you do that on an eighty year old, you're probably going to fracture ribs, and like old people don't heal quickly, and then again that's very traumatic. Uh, to that person. So not only are they going to have to recover from whatever brought them into the hospital, they're going to now have to recover from whatever we just did to them to keep them alive. Um, so that's all those extra things. And that can be massive setbacks. Backs. Um, so all things to consider. <laughs> yeah. uh, obviously, we're not working to DNR everybody. Like, obviously, patients who are very healthy, well, you don't need to be a DNR. A patient, it's very... Situation, person to person, you know, not everyone should be DNR. Um, and that's not really up to me to make that decision what you would want to be or not. Because um, our job as medical professionals is to do 
whatever you want. And every now and then you get uh, this joke, I think it's mostly joking, this tossed around notion of a soft code. Um, I, 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 don't, I think a lot of non-medical people would be probably horrified by that language. Um, but rest assured, most of the time when it's, it's mostly joking, but um, even when the seniors hear it, they go, no, 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 there's no such thing as a soft code. You're either doing it, you're not doing it. So they code and they're full code, you do the code. You do everything you're supposed to do. Now, if you are doing CPR, you're doing shocks, if you know, indicated in medicines, intubating uh, a 95-year-old who's got terminal cancer that's you know, collapsing the lung and they they basically stopped breathing. I, uh, sure, like maybe you don't go for two hours. <laughs> you, maybe this code isn't going to go on for that long. Um, maybe your threshold of stopping is a little bit lower in those patients just because they're not going to make it. Your odds of them pulling through the code is not, you know, is pretty pretty low. I think the odds are pretty low in those situations. But um, obviously, like same put that same scenario in a younger patient, you might you might go for quite a few rounds before you call before you decide to call it quits. And that's a whole other animal, too, of you know, how long... You know, it's a hotly debated topic, how long you do codes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. So um, back when we were in Georgia, um, we had a, a couples meeting with um, the old dean, dean of Mercer. Oh, yeah. Um, and his wife had mentioned like all these things that you needed. And one of them was all of the hospital paperwork of what your spouse would and would not want done. And Eric and I have talked about this several times <laughs> because we have not done the paperwork. I mean, this was her advice to us uh, and to every, all the other couples that were there. But we haven't done the paperwork because we feel like, well, it's situational. Well, like if something were to happen to us now, we'd probably want more extraordinary measures done because we have dependents. I think it's whatnot. reasonable to say, like, we're apprehensive to fill out the paperwork. <laughs> um, but, like, realistically, you can change it. Like, you, you can do yeah. it today, then, like, in a year from now, six months, a week, you can change it. Like, uh, we're, we're making the excuse that, well, you know, in five years, you know, in 20 years, we're going to have a different, a different uh, advanced directive. But realistically, we can change it. Like, we're totally capable of doing one now and then changing it. So it's just purely laziness that <laughs> it, is, it is laziness, um, and maybe a little bit of like more ta like uh, fear of like we don't really want to put that in on ink, you know. Uh, anyway, it's just been that kind of week on eight south, uh, just a lot of <laughs> a lot of sick patients, um, and it's just difficult to difficult to there's a different variety, I guess, um, and there's a kind of a creeping thought I keep having. It's something that I'll keep chewing on, I guess, as we go through this ro these rotations. And I, and I, I'm, I haven't told Karen this, so we'll go. <laughs> <laughs> is that there is a perk to critical care versus um, just like hospitalist. So hospitalist has to deal with a whole host of different things. Critical care deals with very critically ill patients. Um, generally speaking, when you're taking care of the patients in the ICU, you are not 
doing discharges. Uh, you, you, are, you are talking to the family, of course. You are dealing with a critical ill, Ill patient. Uh, but you don't really have a lot of conscious patients. You do have some, obviously, patients who come in that are able to talk and communicate. But oftentimes, patients are on ventilators and pressers and BiPAPs and whatnot, which makes it hard for them to communicate, uh, which is you know, plus or minus uh, on that one. I mean, not plus, obviously. Like, you don't want patients on any of that stuff. But that's what critical care really is. Uh, you, you, you don't get on the ICU unless you need to be on the ICU. Um, so you don't have to deal with placement. You don't have to deal. <laughs> it's, it's, it's somewhat easier. Certain aspects of that job are easier. Certain aspects, obviously, critically ill patients with complex medical histories that are having multiple problems can be very complicated and uh, difficult to manage. I, I, I'm going to probably eat my words when I do my crit rotation but <laughs> well and two there's a greater likelihood that you may lose your patience which increases your emotional load there. yeah for sure it uh, and but hopefully you're not seeing you know 15 patients on the floor you you, you don't have 15 patients that you're yeah. taking care of you maybe take care of less much less hopefully much less than that i don't know what the average crit care doctor takes care of but uh in either case uh, that is a a point in the column for critical care is that um, a lot of some a lot of some of the stuff that hospitalists do is a lot of discharge planning discharge conversations trying to figure out where the patient's going to go like oh this patient has afib and they need to be on some kind of anticoagulation to and they don't have any gi risk bleed so we really do need to anticoag them but they don't really have a whole lot of money so how do we get this patient on Zeralto or Eloquis, uh, how do they do that? And it's it becomes like a lot of conversations, talking about different programs, and you don't want to send a patient, we talked about this last week, you don't want to send a patient home on a very expensive medication that they can't afford. Um, but the alternative is warfarin in many cases, and that's not exactly a, a wonderful option either. So uh, that is all things you do not have to really deal with in the ICU. Because uh, you're anticoagging with heparin or lovenox, if you can anticoag, you're uh, and then by the time they, I think, and again these are very generalized <laughs> statements. There's patients we had a patient I think that needed to de be desensitized to penicillin in the ICU. Um, it just would mean you know, they didn't have any issues. They just they were in otherwise good health, uh, quote unquote. Um, but they needed to be desensitized to penicillin, and that's an ICU level of intensity of people watching, making sure they don't have any sort of horrible reaction uh, while they get desensitized so they can get their 4 million units of penicillin. So, Because <laughs> <laughs> um, there, there are certain things you treat that you have to treat with penicillin, and uh, those patients go to the ICU to be for the uh, close monitoring capabilities that they have up there. Uh, otherwise not sick but <laughs> that was a slight tangent but so just kind of carving out that not everyone that goes to the ICU is critically critically ill but uh, oftentimes they are um, but that was I was just kind of chewing over that mentality it's like well there's a lot of things that kind of stink about a lot of different jobs in medicine like I like taking care of patients I like dealing with the acuity I like uh, dealing with complex problems I don't necessarily love placement. I don't necessarily love doing um, post 
um, post-hospital planning and whatnot. Like obviously that stuff that's important. Uh, I, I understand the importance of. Uh, so if anyone's going to be like, well, don't you understand that primary care management outside of the hospital management is important? Of course I do. I just don't <laughs> want to do it. That's not my favorite thing to do. Uh, it doesn't mean it doesn't get done or doesn't need to get done. It just means I would rather someone else do that that likes it more. I'm not even sure if that person exists, but... <laughs> <laughs> there are people that exist that like that love research and want to do that. With their medical not degree. for me. I mean, I will do. Yes. I will do research um, as obviously uh, as someone who is thinking about a cardiology fellowship, and uh, those are competitive. I will need to do research, and we have been working on it. So we will see. I'm still waiting for my my consent letter to come back. I might have to call that person again, but yeah. that's a side tangent there. <laughs> um, so that's basically been a lot of eight south. Obviously, some. Other takeaways I've gotten this week is just uh, different mentalities in medicine. Oftentimes we will have other other teams or other residents from different floor, uh, different uh, specialties come rotating through the floors, and they have they bring their strengths with them, and they also bring some of those weaknesses as well. And so sometimes it's hard uh, to have uh, those people on your floors with you, and that's. Uh, I would, I would really strongly encourage anyone who is like going off specialty, off, off service and doing some other service to really try, like really, like even if it's not what you want to do, even if it's like, I'm a, like, for example, like I'm an ED doc. I don't, I don't want to do this nonsense. Like do it. Like the patient, it, the patient really does need you to do your job and the team needs you to do your job. And even if it's not what you want to do, it's not what you got matched for in residency, like, you should try. Like, when in Rome, try to be like the Romans. So, (laughs) um, and I I know that's hard because I I think there's always this mentality, like, well, this is not what I want to do, so I don't really, I'll do the work, sort of, but I'll do the work how I like to do it. And it's like, but... At, for again, playing off that same example, how you do things in the ED is great for the ED. It is not great for the floor. But, and the same with psych, you know, same with psych, same with surgery. Like, at the, you guys all have these, we all have these mentalities that are great for when we're in our specialty, not so great when we're off service. So try to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think another thing that we, you, have noticed this week and really your first time on 8 South as well, is that when you, it really is important to get your note in or at least communicate to the primary team. Oh, what like your, consulting. Yeah, with con- consulting because you ask for your consults early in the morning because you, if there's any tests and whatnot that need to be done, you want them to get done as soon as possible. You don't want to throw that consult team under the bus and have them try and consult right before they leave. They're not going to want to do anything. Well, they, they may not do it, and you may not yeah. get it until the next day, so the patient is going to have waited 24 hours. But of... then you're waiting for their consult note, and that might not drop until like right before they leave, which is coincidentally right before <laughs> you leave, so then you have to wait to do your note well, you can do your note, but you 
we'll just still have to read their note and adjust plans based yeah. off of it. Well, and there was an instance this week where it was thought that a patient was going to have a procedure because of a consult team. And then they were off food all day because they were supposed to have this procedure and then it didn't happen. And that's not the best. Yeah. I mean, and they, they were supposed to go for a procedure. So we had them NPO all day. And then like four thirty, the nurse is like, can this patient eat? Are they still having the procedure today? And I look, and like 10 minutes before, the, the consulting group dropped their note in, and it's like, no procedure to, until tomorrow. It's like, well, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Appreciate the communication. <laughs> so even or, if it isn't a note in the system, uh, you don't have time to do it, it is still important. It would be nice if they would at least message. Dro- yeah, drop a message. And it's something for Eric as well, because, I mean, obviously... He's had two um, step-down rotations thus far. He's been on admin team, um, but as he goes through and does um, ED and he does other rotations, he'll be in critical care. He'll be. You've done neuro. I did neuro critical. Uh, I've done neuro admit um, and eight south. Eight south. There's one more. Uh, infectious disease. Infectious disease. Yeah. So I, it's something for him to be cognizant about because he's going to have these specialty rotations so that he... There's obviously some consulting groups that are, I think, I don't want to say less important, but like the urgency of their recommendations aren't as important. Or like they their recommendations, they'll just do, which is nice. Like... So infectious disease is probably a prime example. Oftentimes when you're consulting them, you're asking for antibiotic recommendations in certain patients. And so they'll see the patient, they'll assess them, and then they'll make the antibiotic changes. And they will just do it. Like, they won't even let you know. And so that's kind of nice, honestly. Like Then you can just look at the note and be, oh, they changed to cefepine. Great. <laughs> yeah, but like GI or... Cardio or... More procedure-oriented specialties. It's always nice to be like, if you're going to do a calf, I got... Because sometimes, that's the other trick, is that sometimes these patients are seen by residents as well, because we have residents that are on those rotations. um, And so they will see the patients, and they will write the consult note and discuss during rounds with their attending, and the attending will decide on what's the plan. So... You can look at the resident note, but it may not be 100% accurate until it's attested by the consulting or the the actual attending. So that can take a little extra time and that can be a little frustrating as well. So also other issues like when you reach out to like a fellow. So like residents, you can, I feel like depending on the, the year, you might be able to give a pass to like, oh, you're off service and you're rotating with like GI or something like that, you're not the expert. You're not the GI expert. So whatever's in your note is what you think it is, but obviously the attending has to say something. When you're a fellow, you're still not necessarily the expert, You are, but you are three years at least deep <laughs> into medicine. Like if you're a cardiology fellow, you've done three years of internal medicine. So you're supposedly in a better 
uh, spot than even the senior on the medicine team is. So what you put in your note is much more valuable. So, (laughs) so, but also like, it's very frustrating. I think I had one fellow that didn't respond to me all day and then like saw the message, didn't respond. And then had the message of them again the next day. And it's like, can you please, can you please give me some idea of what we're doing with this patient? Because like, I don't know. Or like some jargon that's in certain notes. I think uh, the funniest jargon I had uh, was, um, I think GI recommending a three-way rule-out ileus. And it's just like, a three-way rule-out ileus? I don't even know what that is. And <laughs> and I, I, I don't think I've ever said three-way so many times in a single day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, eventually, I guess, um, the GI person said it was a KUB, which... I didn't think that's called a three-way, but, you know, whatever. Um, uh, interesting jargon like that can also show. I, I don't know. We're kind of off on a random tangent. I don't really know what my general point is besides I'm just kind of grumbling. Oh, uh, well, no, my gen- my general point you was... Have, you have a point. I don't know what my <laughs> point is. <laughs> but it is, it is interesting how different a specialty, how everything affects everyone else. And you don't necessarily know how it affects other people within the hospital until you've maybe worked a different floor or been in a different situation. And I wonder how many doctors who have been out of residency or who have been in their specialty for a very long time forget how that people, I mean, they don't, they cognitively, know that people are waiting on their note and waiting to know what should be done but at the same time they're busy doing other things yeah there's a lot of things going on (laughs) we might not be the most important person (laughs) in the list of like all the patients that they're seeing today all the stemmies that they're cathing or all the gi bleeds that they're clipping or you know cauterizing embolizing like probably the patient who's not going to get the procedure till tomorrow is not and as npo is not the highest priority yeah but it does beg the question like vancouver clinic the doctors had um some of them some of them paid for a um scribe and it i kind of wonder if that is probably the most efficient that's way that's what to the do residents things. for <laughs> No, I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like the resident goes and sees the patient. I, I, I honestly, I, I, I've only seen scribes, and I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I, I've only ever seen scribes myself in the ED in the hospital. Uh, mm. Otherwise, I've only seen, seen scribes in clinics. So I, I don't know if doctors would pay a scribe to follow them around the hospital, which could be challenging. Yeah. I, I don't. Again, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I just saying I have not seen it. Um, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, well, but we've only ever been at teaching hospitals as well. Yeah, uh, but and, and residents are, are essentially the yeah. labor. If you have a resident working for you, uh, it is customary to be like, go see all the patients and report back. And anyone I might need to uh, talk to, I, I, you know, we we'll work on that. Um, so that's, uh, that's all been fun. Um, my only other gripe would be is I, I wish that there were very consistent methods of communication. Like, we're, we're blessed to have 
medical record system that has secure chat. Um, so you can secure chat people. It's an extra, you don't have to find their cell phone number and call them. You don't have to call everybody that you can just look them up, send the message, but not every doctor uses it. And there are certain doctors who absolutely will not and refuse to, and they only will take phone calls. But it's like, I don't know. I I'm from the generation that really doesn't like phone calls. Um, (laughs) I, I really don't. Like I honestly, I can talk on the phone. I'm, I did that for seven years as a surgery coordinator. I can do it. It's not my favorite thing to do. Um, if you want to communicate with me, it sometimes it is better to text me. Uh, I will make time to talk to you on the phone if it, you know, cause talking on the phone is actually with friends and whatnot is much more beneficial than texting. But <laughs> like I would much rather text somebody than talk on the phone, especially like if I'm trying to talk to like a cardiologist or a GI dog. But there are some specialties that are very hit and miss on how responsive they are, if they will ever respond to it. So that's a kind of a gripe I have. And, and again, I'm, this is just grumbling from an intern. I don't, there could be some very good reasons why these guys don't use these systems. Um, and I'm just not familiar with their rationales. Uh, additionally, like who's on call is also a very frustrating thing. Like I will have a patient and I'm like, I need to consult cardiology. Great. And then I'll look up who's on the on call for cardiology today. Who's taking, who's taking call and the patient that has no cardiac history. So I'm like, I don't even have to look for like, Oh, are they at uh, Fern Creek or are they Cape Fear Valley or Cape Fear Heart? Like, no, I just, who's on call that's who I'm calling. And I call that person. And they're like, oh, so-and-so is in the hospital. Call them. So I call that person. And they like, okay, I'll look into it. And they call back like five minutes later. Uh, actually, so-and-so is on call today. It's like, but that's not what the schedule says. Like, the, <laughs> So like, you end up talking to like three different cardiologists at one night. And it's just like, that. that is not a great use of my time. And <laughs> I mean, I will do it because it's what my patient needs and that's what needs to, it needs to get done. So it will get done. It's just um, an unpleasant thing. And also like I'll even gripe about the pulmonologist. Like <laughs> uh, they have a schedule. It is not accessible to anyone. Oh. <laughs> so they have a schedule and I think you get the call and then somebody will tell you who's on call. But you can't go on to like the am I on and see who's on call. Like they're the one of the only specialists that will not. Oh, that's interesting. Which is like that's that is in, almost infuriating almost. But like I, I'm sure there's a rationale. I'm sure there's a good reason for it. But like <laughs> when you're like, I need to call and talk, consult pulmonology. This patient's got like a massive pleural effusion. We need pulmonology on board. And it's just like who's on call? Don't know. And there's like one schedule I've seen posted in eight salves room, but like half the time it's wrong. <laughs> so like it's, uh, I, I, those, these are systemic things like organizational things. Like people need to be doing the same thing to, to some, in my opinion, like there needs to be a pretty straightforward flow in order to get things done. So everyone, like new people coming in, isn't like, well, for cardiology and this doctor, you have to do it this way. And for, if it's this doctor and you do it this way. And if this doctor is like, we already have to remember a thousand different things as interns. Now remembering like which doctor has a very particular way of doing things. 
as opposed to this is just how we do it. This is how it's done. Uh, but anyway, that's that's my soapbox. That's a that's a process thing. And again, maybe there's very good reasons for the way this is, and I just am not privy to it. I am open to that criticism, and <laughs> we will. Um, this is just how medicine, I think, is. Gen- I remember in Vancouver Clinic that was a, a common gripe was that, you know, ortho does things a certain way, and and uh, GI does things a certain way, general surgery does it a different way, and the, why can't you guys all do it the same way? <laughs> so yeah, well, and I think too. I mean, having had worked at a clinic for seven years you got to see the onboarding of several doctors and each new onboarding you brought brought different doctors and they had different uh, ideas of how things should be done or how much they should do and I think that's kind of just the nature of the doctor personality a little bit is I've gone through this so so much school. This is my this has <laughs> this been my training, w- my experiences, this and is how so I this want is how I done. like it. Yeah, and they get it because they're the doctor. <laughs> yeah, I mean they're obviously the person who's going to be rendering the care, so everyone kind of bends to. That's true, and as an intern, you are the lowest on the the pole of doctors. So, speaking of which, it is still weird. It's still a little weird when I message the nurses and they're like, thank you, sir. And I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I'm probably about the same age as you, if not younger. Like, you don't have to serve me, but that's okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I know they're being polite and they're, they're being professional, so it's not a big deal. It's just, it's, I'm not sure if I'm used to that yet. Um, anywho, uh, it's, I think this is better than that. Maybe we'll touch on the interview stuff we mentioned the interviews we might talk about do you oh. want to maybe we'll next week we'll next do that week. next week sorry we're, that was a long enough pause we're not going to do that <laughs> <laughs> we'll try it ne- we'll try it next week um anyway i know interview season is upon us people at least we're getting uh, the invites are going out and people are getting the opportunities to build those schedules accept those invites i'm not sure how soon the interviews are happening but I would suspect by the end of this month we might see a bunch of rounds of interviews. So schedule quickly. Be aware of your email because those slots fill up, and you want to be one of the first. It's. I think it's better to be one of. I I don't know if it really makes a big difference, but I think actually, yeah. So the first wave of interviews is generally like these are the people we want to see, and if you're in that first wave, then uh, that's generally a good. Good idea. Sometimes, like the second wave of interviews, if you get it in the second wave, you'll be grateful you got it. You know, I'm I was always grateful I got an interview, but like just kind of knowing the back of your head, those second wave interviews is kind of well, we have extra slots. People canceled. Maybe we weren't particularly happy with some of the first round picks, so we're expanding the net a little bit wider and then grabbing a few other people for interviews. But you may not be have been their first pick, so. Yeah. Um, well, ironically, I mean, we we matched at our first interview. Yeah, this was yeah, this was my first interview, and we matched there. Um, still, no regrets currently. I mean, there's it's tough, and there's definitely like I think with all programs, there's room for improvement and there's room for growth. Uh, but I I definitely still just 
throwing it out there. No one's paying me to say it, but I, I, I think that the program has all the hallmarks of a program that's working. It's a decent program and working to be an even better program, like open to adjustments, open to changes, working on changing cultures and working on improving. I'm not changing. I just made it sound like a terrible culture, but <laughs> working on just like keeping, trying to improve the program uh, at, Every step of the way. So I think uh, no regrets so far. So anyway, uh, we will, I think, call that a day. It's a good 40 minutes of (laughs) me rambling around with no actual point, (laughs) making intern level complaints that (laughs) in three years I will probably roll my eyes at and say, that's not a big deal. But anyways, here we are. We hope you guys have a good week. We hope you guys are getting your interviews. Um, Obviously, if you're in one of those specialties where they're not sending out interviews until November, take a deep breath. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But uh, uh, we wish you the best of luck, and we will see you next see week. See you next week. Bye.